Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What's up for today, Alex? So today we have this story from NPR. They went out to that uh, Pennsylvania district that just had their special election. This, of course, was before the special election. And they gathered about four voters um, together to sort of talk to them about what issues were most important to them and who they were going to vote for in the special election. And so what really caught me about this episode was that they sat these people down and they all started having this very, you know, high-minded, erudite conversation about, you know, which issue is important to them. And, you know, I'm a this kind of issue person and I'm a healthcare issue person and I believe in small government. And then as they started getting more questions probed to them, the conversation sort of degraded into this this visceral sort of argument about, you know, racism and sexism and, you know, how you treat your wife. And it, it was sort of, uh, it was fascinating to me. I was listening to this thing in, in the gym and I, I practically fell off the treadmill listening to them because it sort of helped to highlight how voters actually make their decisions. Now, you know, NPR and a lot of news stations go out into the field and they sort of have this belief that there's this this mythical average voter out there, these people who represent, you know, middle class America, and they must have the secret to, you know, what's really going on. Yeah. So as we're going to be listening to this, this is going to be two Republicans, two Democrats who are going to be sitting there. Of course, they chose this on purpose, so they're going to have some sort of uh, conversation. It's really interesting. We're going to be breaking down each segment of it for you all so that you can really hear it. And we're also going to be putting in a link to this in the show notes so that you can follow along if you'd like. There's also going to be in the show notes a um, clip that actually happened after this where they did kind of a follow-up segment. So let's go ahead and begin and hear the start of this. We're gathered around a long table in the kitchen of David Pedorgal's suburban home. He works for a big coal company overseeing tugboats that ply the rivers. Dave, who goes by the nickname Pod, voted for President Trump and is supporting Rick Saccone. For him, this election is about the economy. I mean, I, I see myself as a fiscal conservative, and I think he, he follows along those lines. And so what I love about how this all begins here is that they start by identifying themselves as uh, this type of voter. What issue is most important to them? Pod here specifically is identifying himself as a fiscal conservative. Now, he's not saying that he's somebody who cares about fiscal issues or, or austerity or anything like he is. He's saying he is this type of person. And that's really interesting because that now ties all of that back to his identity. He is self-identifying something so that, you know, when we start criticizing his issue, we're no longer criticizing the underlying facts or principles. We're criticizing him as a type of person who is now very tied to this issue at a, a visceral identity level. Yeah, he's going to be under the gun. And this idea of, okay, an identity, right? When someone says, I am a Democrat, I am a Republican, I am a fiscal conservative, okay? I am this particular type of person. What happens is that they put themselves in that framework and it can be a trap. And it can be a trap because it seems on the surface that they have this identity that is kind of another way or a short way of describing these other various issues that they care about. And yet what happens when they have that identity that if someone were to frame something 
uh, with respect to the values that are encompassed within that identity and the issues that are encompassed within that, even if they wouldn't otherwise agree with it standing on its own, they're going to be persuaded to agree with it because that's who they are. And appealing to who someone is is always more important than just appealing to a particular issue in terms of how do you get someone to completely change their behavior. Now, a couple of other things, you know, when we listen to, to Pod here, one of the things that, um, because I listen to language very closely, and what he said was, I see myself as a fiscal conservative. And I think he, meaning Donald Trump, follows along those lines. So his description of himself, his self-image, is a visual representation. It's a picture in his head. And so he's got this self-image and he's implying that Donald Trump is close to that image, meaning that there is this affinity for Donald Trump. He's close. It's, it's someone who he holds close to his heart, you might say. And, you know, this, this alone, you know, it's like, is he going to be persuaded more toward Donald Trump's point of view? Of course. And we already know that at the, at the very beginning. And it's not only because of the issues. That's, that's going to be what we're going to be underlining here is it's not only because of the issues. It's actually because of emotions and a person's values. And see, now it goes, it goes back to one other thing, too. If you think back to our first episode, um, back when Taylor at the very end asked, all of you at home to think about the various ways that you identify yourself as a type of voter, as pro-life or as a liberal, as a conservative, as a fiscal conservative, whatever it is. He asked you all to think about how that gives you power and how that takes power away. And so as you listen to these people identify themselves, specifically Pod here in this, in this example that just passed, Think about that issue and how um, how you sort of frame that in your head and the way that you think. Um, so let's listen to a little bit more here. Across the table is Rosie Bigley. She's been a nurse for 38 years. Medical care needs to be available to everybody, whether you can really afford it or not. And I believe that Connor Lamb really supports that. Again, we're continuing to identify ourselves here as voters supporting a candidate because of the issues. Now... What's interesting here is that we now have a nurse and of course medical care is, you know, something that's near and dear to her because she's working with it every day, but um, she's sort of coming at it from a little bit more of a, a liberal perspective of, um, you know, being egalitarian, uh, making sure that we're taking care of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really key value difference between liberals and conservatives. So if we ask most people, is fairness a value that you have? Just about everyone is going to say, yeah, I believe in fairness. Okay, I believe in things being fair. But what is the definition of fairness? For liberals, fairness means, and this has been studied, okay? So for liberals, fairness means equality. It means that everything is equal. So uh, Rosie here says medical care needs to be available to everybody whether you can really afford it or not. So that's in fairness as equality viewpoint. Conservatives, on the other hand, tend to view fairness as proportionality. Okay, meaning if you do more, if you work more, if you, if you contribute more to society, then you should get more. It's about things becoming more proportional rather, being, rather than being equal. And that's a really key value distinction that you can start to listen to in the discussions with liberals and conservatives alike, and notice, what do they mean when they say that? What is it they mean by fairness? Let's listen to the next part. Susanna DeGeet retired after a long career in social services and education. She's a staunch Republican, and she's focused on three main issues. Our national security, it's our economy, and then I'd have to say healthcare too. Steelworker Jojo Burgess is a union steward. He's African-American, and he is supporting Connor Lamb. I look at the issues as it comes to working people and poor people. And so this is where we sort of see the first tell. We're sort of getting past the high-minded, you know, issue talk. And now we're starting to, to get more into the underlying sort of emotional level here. Right here, Jojo is getting to talk about his group of people. 
his working class and poor people. And so he's making that bridge to more, you know, emotional and value-based decisions. What's important to him is making sure that politicians are taking care of people who are just like himself. Yeah. And he even says it. He's kind of saying, well, this is how I look at it. I look at it as it comes to working people and poor people. So effectively, he's completely screening out anyone who isn't working and poor in an issue that might affect them. Okay. He's, he's screening that out of his mind. And um, he's, he's considering it already based on based within a lens or a framework that is um, limited in scope. Let's listen to the next part. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about some of the motivating factors of, of what you think Pennsylvania and this part of Pennsylvania needs right now. The industry, I'm in a coal industry. There was a war on coal from the previous administration. OK, it hurt the coal companies. It hurt the steel workers, no denying that. The coal miner and the related industries have been forgotten about. I think we need somebody in there that doesn't forget about the rural areas. Now listen to the language that he's using right here. War on coal. It's not a neutral language. He's not describing anything factually. He's not, you know, talking about the issue anymore. Now he's in sort of the emotional world where he's talking about you know, this, this war that's going on. And, and of course, it, you know, it all comes from the media and, and there's a whole, you know, sort of a historical narrative around that. But the fact that he's sort of internalized all of that and he sort of built up this narrative and all of this emotional baggage onto it. And now it is this war with us versus them. There are these politicians and there are these supporters of those politicians who are destroying my way of life in war and in combat and and that's what we're fighting against and it's just so interesting that in a couple of words he's able to pack that much emotion into it with it, it, it almost coded um in a way that you know might only be picked up by by certain people yeah and it's the power of metaphor you know this is some of uh, joseph campbell's work on metaphor that when we talk about war when people describe their experience, when they say there's a war on coal, what does it imply? It implies there's going to be a winner, there's going to be a loser, it's going to be a knockdown, drag out fight, there's going to be blood, there's going to be carnage, and it's going to engage the fight or flight mechanism within that person's brain. Now, when a person goes into fight or flight, they're no longer thinking rationally, they're no longer being able to just take a step back and consider all the issues, right? No. Instead, in that moment, when he uses that metaphor, when he thinks of it as a war, you know, it reminds me of that George Carlin skit, you know, where he says, we've got a war on this and a war on this and that war on the other thing. <laughs> you know, we've got so many wars going on. And it's one of the things that, that happens with this is because the media and, and the politicians know people react to war. You know, when they think, oh, I've got a war, that means I have to fight, I have to protect myself. And, you know, we could go, go many places with that. Um, the other thing that's, that's happening here with that, that idea is that he has a series of attribution errors. So he thinks that the reason the coal companies are not making money and the reason the steel workers are having a tough time is because of this war. He, he thinks that this is the reason why this is happening to me. Well, you know, put yourself in his shoes. Okay. This guy is, you know, working in a blue collar job in a blue collar environment. He doesn't really know much about, you know, the fancy politicians in Washington. He really, you know, doesn't want to have that much to do about it, but he knows that he and, you know, the people around him are suffering. Why are they suffering? Well, it, we all know that that could be a number of different reasons. But, you know, then comes in the media and the media or the politicians say, well, this is why you're suffering. It's because there's a war on coal. And they go that it makes sense now. I don't have to take personal responsibility. I don't have to take a more nuanced perspective on this. There's just a war on my job. There's a war on me and I am going to fight. <laughs> OK, that's what these people are going through inside of themselves. And if you consider, would you really expect someone with that kind of 
framework or that kind of perspective to then be able to go, oh, you know what? I get it. I'm just going to switch over to clean en- energy and, um, you know, start to start to do something completely different. Right. And all of this is probably amplified because, you know, he's in this town. He probably has only a, a certain set of friends and and only a certain number of people that he talks to. And, and, and they might all think the same and sort of reinforce that value. Absolutely. It's an example of the availability heuristic. And what this says is this is a cognitive bias that people have that states that the information that is most around them, the information that is most available, they're going to tend to weight up higher inside of their mind. So you might think about, for example, a uh, news show, like what do they show on the news? Well, you know, what did they show after um, 9-11, right? The plane crashing into the tower again and again and again and again, right? Airplane crash here, airplane crash there. And there are a lot of people who are afraid of flying because they see that and they go, oh my God, an airplane is really unsafe. What is the truth of the situation? Airlines are way safer than automobiles, like much, much, much safer. Okay. It's, it's incredible the, how much safer an airline is or an airplane is than riding in a car. Uh, you know, the, you're, you're much more likely to get injured or to have other adverse consequences being in a car than you were in an airplane. But because of the availability of the information, then people tend to think that that's more real to them in a, in a, certain, in a certain way. Let's listen to the next segment here. I'm not sure if we're any different here than we are across the states where people are concerned about the economy and jobs. And President Trump, he's bringing back the jobs. He's reducing the regulations. Jobs have increased in the United States. That's not just here. That was across the nation, which is why Trump won, and which is why we want to keep that agenda moving forward. It's all about agenda and policies. And it's amazing here because this is the moment where Dajit is sort of talking about what she sees as facts. But everything about her vocal inflection and her affect is so emotional and it's sort of like, um, you know, you can be giving somebody an insult, but with a smile. And that's what, that's sort of what she's doing here is that she's saying like, you know, they're fact, 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 but I'm going to rub this in your face. Yeah, this is a great example of causal linking, what's called causal linking, which it, it's kind of like um, for those of people who are familiar, it's like a yes ladder in sales. Okay, it's like, you know, so you like this type of car and you like the leather interior and this Trump's this trunk space is going to be really great for you. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, great. Well, let's go back and sign up and write up this contract. Right. So what she's doing is let's break down some of the language aspects that are happening here. So she's saying, here's a fact. Here's a fact. Here's a fact. Right. Or assertions. Okay, but premise, premise, premise. And then I'm going to link it to something. So she says, you know, President Trump, he's bringing back the jobs. That's, you know, one. He's reducing the regulations. Jobs have increased in the United States, dot, dot, dot. Now notice she's, it's changing tense right there too. Yeah. It, he's bringing back jobs. He's reducing regulations. But now it's jobs have increased in the United States. Yeah, and that's why he won. And- you're right. Exactly. That's that's because why he, he won. was president before he was president, which made him become president. <laughs> yeah. She's doing this funny thing with with time where Trump is bringing back jobs. They have increased. And that is why he won. Well, wait a second. So did the increase happen before or after he was elected? So there's a time leap. And again, listen back through the segment and you're going to hear it. There's a time leap in exactly when those jobs got added. And what did that mean? What was it that that meant about Trump, what that meant about his success and about his policies. Now, yes, that's just a small language idea, but this is the stuff that has a person think differently inside of their minds. They swap things around. They change the order. They change, you know, what someone says into what they want it to be. Okay. And it's, it's stuff like that, which we, if you sensitize your ear for it, you're going to start to hear it all the time. And then, uh, uh, ironically enough, she ends it with, it's all about agenda and policies. Yeah. That's just puts the icing on the cake right there. Well, because this is, that's, that's a way of summarizing it in an emotional way. 
you know, hey, I just told you a bunch of emotional things. I just told you a bunch of assertions, not really facts. I told you a bunch of things that inspired you or got your emotions up. And what it really is about is about the policies. I mean, we know that, right? <laughs> As if we've been talking logically this whole time. It's like a microcosm for this, this entire NPR story. Uh, yes. <laughs> let's continue. I want to move on just for a second because I'd like to get your point of view specifically on the issue that motivates you, which is healthcare. And is this the issue that you feel that is the most important here in Pennsylvania? It is healthcare. And it's also getting some new blood into government, someone who is willing to, you know, work across the aisle. Falsely, Connor Lamb was tightly linked with Nancy Pelosi, which is not true. He has said that it's time for a lot of these longtime career politicians. Give it a rest. And here, what I love is that Bigly immediately deviates from healthcare being a motivational issue to talking about values. Like she, she is prompted with the question of, you know, healthcare is important to you, isn't it? Tell me about healthcare. And then she says, yeah, healthcare is important, but here's what's really important. Connor Lamb. And it's all of, yeah, it's all of these values, right? All of these values and the relationship I have with Connor Lamb and Nancy Pelosi and it's about the longtime career politicians and getting new blood, which has nothing to do with healthcare. Yeah, and a couple of things with that. So one thing is uh, you'll hear that emotional metaphor once again. We hear some metaphors coming in. She's a nurse. Okay, she says it like this. It's also getting some new blood into government. What is she thinking about? Blood. Well, what is what are all the connotations of getting new blood into government? Like, could you say it a different way? Um, and the other thing is, is that if you listen to that last sentence, um, he has said it's time for a lot of these longtime career politicians. Give it a rest. She didn't actually finish what she was saying. She actually just interrupted it right in the right in the middle and just gave kind of a summary. Just give it a rest. Let's talk a little bit about Donald Trump, because he does loom very large over the political landscape at this time. Um, I'd like to know what your views are of the president. Um, my views are every time I see Donald Trump or he opens his mouth, I cringe. It floors me, his lack of empathy. I don't think he can identify with middle class, lower middle class, people who have suffered major personal losses. Wow. And now we are yeah. so far out of the realm of talking about the issues. Mm -hmm. This person, Bigley, is sort of uh, marked the point where this conversation is now jumping the rails. Uh, this person's voting on very emotional response to Trump in sort of uh, in sort of hypnotic terms or, or, or neurolinguistic programming. We'd say that she, you know, when she says every time I see Donald Trump or he opens his mouth, I cringe She's having sort of a, a physical response to a different sensory perception and is crossing the two in sort of a synesthesia. And, you know, X means Y. This means I have this reaction and it's all emotional and it's all visceral and it's all subconscious. Like she's saying, I have subconscious feelings about Donald Trump. Yeah, she also didn't answer the question. Okay. I'd like to know what your views are of the president. She says, my views are every time I see Donald Trump or he opens his mouth, I cringe. That's not your view. That's your emotion. And so we see how people actually get their view on the particular issues and the emotion mixed up. Now, this person is going to have a really tough time being open-minded whenever she hears anything that Donald Trump does or says, okay? Whether he does something that she otherwise would agree on or not, she's going to have a really tough time being open-minded because effectively she's already made up her mind emotionally. And that's what comes first. She has the emotion. She's going to see him. She's going to feel the emotion. He's going to open his mouth. She's going to feel the emotion. And as soon as she feels that emotion, whatever it is that he says, she's already prejudged. And we're totally out... Um she sort of makes the pivot here from healthcare to empathy or lack thereof. And sort of mm. uh, her feelings about Donald Trump and about this congressional race get 
all tied back to sort of those uh, those uh, archetype values of liberals and conservatives, where we've got um, sort of that that uh, care versus harm, that empathy value right there, um, which is you know really not any any actual issue, but very much so rooted in um, a core value. Let's listen to it a little bit more. No matter what the man does, if he cures cancer, he's going to be tagged for something he said on Twitter. Meanwhile, if you can't see him as a compassionate person, I want you to understand that the whole reason he gave up his fortune and his lifestyle to run for the office was to make sure that the average working person got to keep more of what they earned instead of seeing it go to big business. That's why he won. And this is now establishing a hero narrative of Donald Trump about why he did what he did. And it's actually assuming what his motives were for why he did what he did. So he's this compassionate person. And the whole reason that he, you know, we're we're assuming his reasons of the reason he gave up his fortune and his lifestyle. That's a, a big premise there to run for the office was to make sure that the average working person got to keep more of what they earned instead of seeing it go to big business. Well, this is, these are very contentious points, and she simply says it as though these are facts. And then once again, we hear her linking it back. That's why he won. Here are a bunch of facts or assertions. That's why he won. She's also making an effort here to sort of bridge the value divide. Again, we see somewhere in her plane of consciousness, she is sensing that the other people in the room um have a have a value divide if you can't see him as a compassionate person she says then x y and z here's another you know uh value for you maybe you care about this value but what she does is she does it sort of all wrong she starts off with uh uh if you can't see him as a compassionate person which is very a very liberal value of of uh sort of care versus harm then maybe you would understand that the whole reason he gave up his fortune and lifestyle was so that the average working person got to keep more of what they earned. And so he gave up all this sort of sacrifice for the collective, which is very much a conservative value of loyalty and betrayal of, um, of, of sort of uh, uh, making sure that your group of people are protected. And so she's trying to make the appeal to the other side but is still talking past it because she's talking conservative values to a liberal. And that's why she's never going to win any, anyone else over. Yeah. She's trying to make a bridge, you know, with a liberal to help them to see as she sees Donald Trump. Okay. To help them to see him in this other light. But her error is, is that, you know, as, as you're describing that the way she describes it or the way she tries to make that bridge is, only using her own values, which is something that, you know, certainly people can uh, go through training, you know, on, on campaign staffs to go through training to be able to uh, to be able to do that more effectively. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the sort of ways that we would train uh, staffs and, you know, politicians themselves is to sort of always be seeking out that value that the other person has. And then latching on to that value and not just assuming that what's important to you is also important to them. Immediately identify the issue and the value that is most important to that other person and then work within that framework um, rather than assuming that they all have the same values and, and issues that you do. Now, the next part here is the most fascinating part, because this is where the, the interview sort of goes totally off the rails. Let's listen. Let's just be serious here. Okay. There's one reason why Donald Trump won this election. Because he made middle-aged white America feel like they were victims of something. This president is racist. He's, he's, he's made many racial statements. And, that, and that's not mainstream media. That's his Twitter account. That's, no. that's his calling an NFL player that's predominantly black, no. son of a bees. If you look at the voting on how he carried this country, not just this state, this country, middle-aged males in particular showed up and voted. And that's where he won this race at. What do you see? First, 
I don't believe he's racist. That's the media thing. I mean, he has one of the largest corporations in the world, and he employs whites, blacks, Hispanics, gays. If he was a racist, he wouldn't be hiring all these people. Okay? So I, I don't believe it. I just, it, it drives me crazy how people try to pin it on him. But I can tell you from my employees, I have both represented employees, meaning union, and I have non-represented. Every one of them voted for Donald Trump. Boy, where do we start, Taylor? Yeah. Well, we, when you hear him first then uh, replying to Burgess, what his, the first words out of his mouth are to basically discredit everything that Burgess just said. Okay. So first, I don't believe he's a racist. That's a media thing. Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. It's a media thing. It's not, it's not real. And this is kind of like hashtag fake news. Okay. It's like, it's all the media. And so anything that that's reported on by the media must be, must be wrong. But there's also some great examples here of how each, each person has their own going back to those cognitive biases, the availability heuristic. Okay. They have that happening. So Burgess cites the NFL players tweet, which was probably highlighted by his own, you know, group mentality and by his own, you know, I talk about Facebook feeds, you know, just what, what his group is, is talking about. Actually, when I listened to this, I didn't even know that that was a, that that was a tweet. And I try to stay pretty informed on these things. Um, and then pod talks about how his employees see, he makes them seem like they're a divorce group. So I have both represented and non-represented. I have this, I have mm -hmm. this and that and this other thing, you know, whites, blacks, Hispanics, gays. As if it's a random sample, as if he didn't hire and specifically select each one <laughs> <Exactly>. of them <laughs> who are all going to work as, harmoniously and think the same. Yeah. And, and, you know, that might have even been an interview question, you know, mm -hmm. so we, we don't really know how how all of that, how all of that happened, but certainly his own biases influenced how those people got in his circle. Right. And, and, um, and this is really where we start seeing the total degradation of this conversation, right? We started yep. out with that, that very, you know, erudite, very high minded issue based discussion from the beginning. And now we've devolved into talking about, you know, essentially calling each other racist by guilty by association <laughs> yeah. and um, and dismissing things as fake news and then getting into sort of tribalism with, you know, uh, NFL players, African-Americans, um, sons of bees, Hispanics, gays. Like we're really <laughs> we're, talking we're not talking about, about the issues else. anymore. Right. Everything. And this is what happens. Feel. This is what happens in political conversations. People stop talking about the issues. They think at the end of the conversation, well, they just don't agree on the issues with me. But actually, it just devolved into this this us versus them mentality and basically a clash of values like we've been like we've been uh, talking about here. All right. So let's get to the next part. So what I what I like so far, I I don't want him to be presidential. He's a businessman. Okay. When we were coming out of that recession, just think if the previous administration did some tax cuts, you know, instead of taxing us more. And Trump came in and did it. And, it, and just I see there's this confidence mm -hmm. being admitted by everybody. And so I'm going to stop it right there because Pod here is, again, not talking about the issues, but rather talking about Trump's presidential affect. Just listen to the tone of his voice when he's talking about Trump. Like we said before, perhaps he sees Trump, who is another businessman, a little bit more as, you know, himself in his own image. And so perhaps here what we're seeing is Pod admires Trump and wants to uh, and wants to um, maybe uh, take on some more of his values and or maybe sees the same values between the two men. And that's what he's really getting at there. Yeah. And I think that happens so often and it happens so persuasively that there's something about a person. This happens, especially in politics. There's something about a person that someone likes. And then because they have that liking, then they look at the other stuff they're doing and they say, Oh, well, I like them in general, and so I'm going to accept that. I'm going to see that in a different light. 
So we have to understand here, you know, what's going on in the brains of people as they talk about these different issues that when a person's brain is in the the point of view of I'm listening, I'm receiving, I really like what it is the other person is saying, they literally hear the information differently than if they're in the mindset and I'm talking about, you know, physical brain activity here that's going on of rejection and not listening and or disgust or something like that. So when they're talking about the opposite political party as they have identified with, they're they're already set up to be thinking about things in a biased way. And you know that that might be really obvious, but the the take-home message here with this is that when you're talking to someone who already has a belief, they literally can't hear the other side of it. And so we need to be able to reach through to them and to connect with them on the things that they will talk about and the things that we can reach some agreement on. All right. Can I ask Paul a question? What is the demographics of your workers that you have that are all voted for Donald Trump? It's very mixed. I have female deckhands. I have, okay. I have, I have. Are there any of them black or Latinas yes. that voted for Donald Trump? One of my best captains is an African-American. Okay. So I have. And very he voted mixed. for Trump. Yes. Okay. And so we're sort of back to that in-group, out-group right there and the the sort of sample bias. He's just asking if there's if the people in his circle are are like himself. Um, so Burgess is asking Pod, like, are there any people like me that you associate? Because obviously, if they were like me, they would not be thinking like you. Right. Yeah. So it's it's as if he's saying... There are no African-Americans or no Latinos that would vote for for Trump. And if he really took a step back and thought about it logically, he would realize, well, of course, that's not true. But when the picture in his mind of is, well, I don't know any that voted for Trump, then we've got this we've got this um, this bias, the sampling bias of what is the sample and is it a representative sample or, or not? And so that that whole thing, you know, it, it sounds like a really reasonable association that Pod is talking about there, um, but it doesn't actually say anything, you know, because just for the reasons we were already talking about, Pod's group is not as diverse or it might not be as diverse as he actually says. I, I, I want to ask you this because it is such a, and as you can see through the conversation, it is a tense time when we talk about politics. Mm-hmm. People's views are so very different at this moment. Have you sat around a table before and had these kinds of conversations with people with with different views? Do you have these conversations here in Pennsylvania because there is such a diversity? I'm a nurse. My group is a very small, close-knit, specialized group of nurses, so we interact like this around a table frequently. And I guess I was surprised prior to the last election how many were voting for Donald Trump. And when we sit around and talk now, and I work with men and women, three out of the four that voted for Donald Trump wish they could take their vote back. When you said, I'm sorry, that he gave up his job, he didn't give it up. It's just sitting over here being managed by somebody else. As soon as he's out of the presidency, he's going right back to making money. And I'm sorry, the economy is a big issue, but it's not the only issue. There are many other issues besides how much money am I going to get in my pocket. And a lot of people viewed that way. What is this president going to do for me? Not our country, not our region, for me. They couldn't see past, past themselves. And here Bigley is doing something that's called outframing, which means that she's creating a frame or a picture, an idea that's bigger than what was being discussed before. So instead of talking about the particular issue, now we're talking about self-interest versus collective interest. So it's shifted from the particular issue to then a self-value, meaning a value that a person has within themselves. And now we're talking about a collective value and the value in that and being able to outframe like that, which honestly, I think that some of these people who are featured here um, really could be politicians themselves because they're using a lot of persuasive things, persuasive methods. Um, the The value of being able to do that is that you're coming to a place of commonality. So what she's saying is, hey, let's not get stuck in all that small stuff. Let's look at the bigger picture. And, you know, can't you agree that 
it's more important, you know, to do things for everyone in this country, not just to help yourself. And, you know, we've got just all sorts of words in this country for people who only help themselves. You know, we don't treat them very nicely. And she's also now explicitly acknowledging that her vote is more about sort of selfishness versus altruism rather than, um, you know, the issues. It's now, you know, all the way back to um, sort of those in-groups and out-groups, the war, the fighting, all of those types of things. Uh, we're just right back to sort of the tribalistic politics, selfishness, and greed and uh, and general affect. It's all uh, right there, but now it's being explicitly mentioned. Well, if someone votes simply on personal issues, how he treats his wife, how he doesn't treat his wife, they will be disappointed at some point here or there. But if you vote on the policies, then I think that you tend to regret your vote less as long as your candidate goes in and does what they're saying they're going to do. So it was the policies that won yeah, I love here how she says the thing about <laughs> how he treats his wife, how he doesn't treat his wife. Uh, that must be that whole stormy thing they're talking about. <laughs> uh, just saying. So, you know, I agree with what she's saying until that last sentence where she says it was the policies that won. Well, we don't actually know what made people check the vote box. But it's another example of a person says, well, this is true. This is true. This is true. And that means this. That's why they won. So everyone listening to this should just have a little uh, checkbox inside of their own minds that whenever someone tells you, well, that's why they won or that's why this happened, that's actually going to be not something entirely true. And honestly, it's just ridiculous that we're still pretending that this is all about policies anymore. Like in her sentence right there, like her, her phrase, none of that really pertained to any sort of issues but and policies and then she just concludes it with and that's why the policies you know that's what that's what did it yeah what should people outside of this area know about what is important to the people of pennsylvania and the people in your district i think the the big thing that's important to people is integrity and i i want to give it a quick example i i had a chance to meet him last week connor lamb and in an open forum just like we have or having here and I said, will you support coal? Will you go against your party and support coal? And he says, well, I'm going to support energy. That's the political answer for saying, no, I'm going to go with my party. And that to me, that's about integrity. That's about being able to, you know, I would have been happy with an answer of no. And I think that's what people in this area, you know, it's, it's blue collar around here. I'm blue collar, you know, and people are looking at that part of life, just like, can we trust somebody? Somebody that we're going to trust is going to take care of us. It's, it's at, at our level. And it, it's something you see with Rick Saccone. Yeah, I love it how he links it to his politician at the end there. So what he says is he would have been happy with an answer of no. But what he doesn't say is whether his happiness would have changed how he voted. Now, let's think about the question he actually asked him. I said, will you support coal? Will you go against your party and support coal? Well, come on. That's a loaded question. You can't take someone's answer to that and then flip it out of context and then consider it, you know, something else. Um, but we see here in what he's saying, just as how he's reporting in this NPR segment, of getting a person into a value. So he's saying it's about integrity. It's about integrity. It's about trust. It's about trust. And then he links it to the politician. So we've we hear this happening throughout this whole clip where someone brings a value, they elicit or bring up a particular value, and then they go, now that you're thinking about that, think about my politician. Right. And I love his phrasing there. This is a blue collar town. I am blue collar. That's identity again. Right. Right. Back to that identity politics. And he's tying all of this sort of stuff as like loyalty toward people just like him. Yeah. And so anyone hearing this who might be identifying with that, this is what I was saying earlier when I said it could be manipulative. Okay. Anyone identifying with that says, well, that's like me and I'm just like that. And because of that, well, I guess I'm a blue collar, you know, worker from Pennsylvania. I must support Rick Saccone. 
But is that really true? Like, if we really got down into the issues with every blue-collar worker from Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. well, now that the polling is out, I guess that we uh, <laughs> know that's not true. You talk about Connor Lamb's integrity because of the answer that he gave you. Have you ever reversed that question to ask Rick Saccone, would you go against your party and vote for what's right versus party lines? He has a voting record. You can check and see what the answer to that is. Connor Lamb's a fresh face in this in this race. Connor Lamb... While he's running as a Democrat, I believe has the common person in mind. So no one changed their minds at the table, and at times it did get heated. But when I used the word contentious to describe their interaction, they all jumped in to correct me. And that's, <laughs> I'm just going to stop it there. <laughs> There's no need for us to listen anymore because it's pretty much done. But I just love how. Uh, she ends it with them jumping in to correct her that this none of this was contentious. They were calling it. Yeah, like we all agree it's a big happy world. You know, we didn't we didn't disagree on anything with all the sons of bees and the Hispanics and the gays. And the, <laughs> right. Um, and the this is me, but that's you. Right. Right. So what we noticed as you know throughout this whole segment is that. When people are talking about voting on the issues, what they're really talking about is they're talking about voting on values and they're talking about voting based on what is it they're feeling emotionally. Now, the thing about voting based on what they feel emotionally, of course, is that it's influenced. Okay, we know there's been so much influence through media sources, through a person's peer group, you know, all of these influence people, you know, so much that they start to get a particular feeling about a politician before they even meet them, before they even see them. That's why if you're driving down some rural, you know, country road, you'll see posters of some sheriff or, you know, county seat member or something like this that you really have never heard of. And, but because, you know, you look at it and you see them and you see them, you, you kind of like that little advertisement, then the next time it's going to be more recognizable to you. And you're going to already have a head start in what you're thinking about that person. And the thing is, is that once we tend to make up our minds about something, we don't tend to change it. Okay. And especially once we commit to it, to someone else, this is what's called commitment and consistency. Once we commit to it publicly or verbally, well, then we're really not going to change our minds unless something so compelling uh, brings us the other way. And I think the other big lesson that we should take away from this is that news organizations often do these types of stories where they go out into, you know, the middle of nowhere and talk to, you know, average Americans out in the States, out where the the normal blue collar people are to get their opinions. And, you know, that's great. Sort of the, the man on the street. On one hand, it is really telling. We were able to discover a lot from breaking down these people's framing of the issues. But the problem is that news organizations really present this whole thing as this is people voting on the issues like this is right people making educated or uneducated decisions um, this is what pennsylvania believes right when in actuality people are making decisions for very different reasons that are not framed the way that the news presents it and it's almost as if it's a fluff piece i just i ask myself why do they even why do they even bother to make these types of stories if, if i were you know average joe um, seeing this on CNN or listening to it, you know, on my bus ride, I'd have brushed past all of this stuff and um, just said, oh, people in Pennsylvania care about health care and the economy. And they're kind of angry about, you know, Trump and the gays. But uh, <laughs> but I really want to encourage our listeners to sit down and think and analyze about what's really happening here when you hear another one of these sort of man on the street kitchen table sort of tiny little focus group discussions yeah listen for what sort of the the unconscious undertones and and sort of value-based decisions that are going on here yeah and town hall meetings too see this is the fallacy 
of the small group or the townhome meeting, you're led to believe that what people are saying is representative of the particular location. But in actuality, you know, as we've just heard, we have four different people. We have four different takes on it. Two of them happen to agree with each other, but we don't really know how much. Um, and two of them agree the other way. And it's it's just fascinating how it's actually it's actually being presented as well. This is what's important. These are the issues that people care about. And this is you know a microcosm of the rest of America. These people are representative of larger groups when, as we showed you here, all of these people are making super micro personal decisions based on their their personality and their, you know, private in groups. Yeah. And it's it actually it actually really is interesting. You know, when we think about this whole idea that news organizations promote of we're going to tell you what small town America thinks. Right. We've heard enough of the media and we've heard enough of we're going to tell you what real people think so we're going to sit down at someone's kitchen table and we're going to tell you what the what the real people think you know i remember them doing something similar with wisconsin you know it's like this is what the real people think um but it's only some of the real people it's not all of them all right i think that's it for this week uh, before you all leave, uh, be sure to go on to iTunes and rate and review us. Even if you don't listen on iTunes, even if you don't listen in the Apple Podcast app, go in there and rate us five stars because it really does make a difference. All of these other apps use Apple um, for their ratings and their review system. So, you know, even if you don't listen in iTunes or the Apple Podcast app, it really does make a big difference. And we'd really like to hear from you in terms of your feedback. There's two ways that you can give us feedback. One is by going to our website at www.subliminallycorrect.com. And you can go ahead and click the contact there and send us a message. And the second way is by checking out our Facebook page. And we're posting these on the Facebook page. So if you have comments about a particular episode, if you have something to contribute or a guest that you'd like to see on the show, come to the Facebook page and uh, check that out. And finally, be sure to check out our Patreon page podcasts aren't free and you can get a lot of awesome benefits uh, as we continue to produce more exclusive content just for patreon members so be sure to go there chip in as much as you can and uh, we'll see you again in two weeks absolutely see you soon